Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Um, we as an elder board uh, in planning for a pastor's sabbatical chose the book of Colossians to go through. And so we're going to have that cohesiveness, even though you will have different speakers, and we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians and studying that together. Um, as we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would uh, be with me and uh, in all of our acknowledged weakness. Lord, I, I pray that you would just hide me this morning and reveal Jesus Christ to all of us this morning through your word. We pray this for your glory. As we come to um, this topic of the sufficient gospel, um, this is often a, a, a doctrine that we need to be very well aware of as we look at the doctrine of Scripture. Is it stated in your doctrinal statement that it is sufficient? And it is in our doctrinal statement, but it needs to be. It needs to be in our doctrinal statement what we believe about Scripture. It is sufficient. And we're going to see that this morning, the emphasis of the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. But to start off with an expository method, I want to take us all the way back to the book of Genesis. Because the Gospel does not start in the book of Colossians. The Gospel started even before the creation of the world in God's plan for us, his plan for his son. And as we have studied the book of Genesis here with our pastor Jeremy and, and gone through the book of Exodus, we've had that wonderful opportunity to hear the gospel in the Old Testament. And as we come to this book of Colossians in the New Testament, we have to remember the Old Testament was the scriptures that they possessed. They didn't have the New Testament like we have today. And so it's very important for us to recognize that the gospel is all through the Word of God. All through the Word of God. So when I title the sermon this morning, The Sufficient Gospel, I am pinpointing the gospel, but I am also including all of Scripture. In Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. He revealed His attributes in creation, in speaking everything into existence out of nothing. He revealed His glory. He made man and woman perfectly. He gave them an abundance of food. He gave one restriction. Do not eat of the food of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve, Eve specifically, was um, approached by the serpent and she was um, tempted that God was revealing something from her that He wasn't sufficient. 
that she needed to eat of this fruit, and then she would be like God, knowing good and evil for herself. She partook of that fruit, gave it to Adam, they ate of it, they sinned against the holy God. There was a separation between them and God. But God came to them, and in Genesis 3.15 He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise. That promise of a Savior. That promise of a restoration of relationship between God and man. We come a little later into Genesis chapter 12 and we read about the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic promise, first of all, in forming a new nation. Even in forming a nation out of Abraham, God's promise to bless from every nation. Then we come to the book of Exodus, the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant was different from the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham in that God made this covenant with another party, with the nation of Israel that He had raised up from Abraham. And we remember that at the Mount, of Sinai, Mount Sinai when God revealed Himself in darkness covering the mountain with lightning, with a storm of His presence. And He said this. He said in Exodus chapter 23, but if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you, from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you. You shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then Moses said, "Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, 
And um, verse 3 of chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. The people agreed to the covenant, but we know they broke the covenant, didn't they? Moses no longer was up in the mountain, and the people were worshiping a golden calf that they had created. They broke the Mosaic covenant. And we see that over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament as God no longer does what He promised He would do because the people did not follow Him and did not obey Him, did not worship Him alone. They followed after foreign gods, false gods. All the way to the death of our Savior where He fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. He obeyed. He fulfilled it. And at His death, He brought an end to the Mosaic Covenant. And what a beautiful thing, as Tom pointed out this morning, that this, the celebration of the Passover, which was part of the the, uh, Mosaic Covenant, Jesus instituted for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We have that great honor and privilege to obey Him in doing that. Let's look at our text this morning now. Colossians chapter 1, through 14, verse 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I've often wondered, as I studied Scripture and looked at it, remember Judas, the one who betrayed Christ? And then in Acts chapter 1, we read that in, in obedience to Christ, the disciples needed to replace Him. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And I've always been curious about that. Especially in light of knowing that God, Christ Jesus himself, called Saul of Tarsus, Paul. Well, it became obvious to me in my studies, and I want to share it with you this morning. Why is that so? Why did Judas need to be replaced? Why did there need to be 12 apostles and then this 13th apostle, the apostle Paul? I believe the answer is in Matthew chapter 19 after the rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, uh, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he left Christ and did not follow him. And Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So God has a distinct plan for those 12 apostles, those 12 Jewish men that Christ chose and, and it chose Matthias also by lot because as in Proverbs it says, God is in control of all lots that are cast. There's no chance. So God's design was for Matthias and the other 11 to be judges of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what about Apostle Paul then? Well, we read here, right here, Paul is claiming to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. And we remember the story. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was a zealot for the Jewish faith, and he did not believe Jesus was risen from the dead. And he set about to make it his personal ambition and mission 
to kill and or jail as many Christians as he could. And on his way to Tarsus, a great light surrounded him. The men who were with him fell blinded. And he saw Jesus. And he heard him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He heard Jesus, and he says this in Acts 26 as he's talking to King Agrippa, telling him what has happened to him. He said, Jesus even spoke to me in my Hebrew language. Jesus revealed himself to this enemy. He saved him and he called him to be an apostle. He goes on to say in verse Acts 26, chapter 17, he says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the Apostle Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So we have the 12 apostles that are going to judge Israel, and we have the apostle called by God, the apostle Paul, called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And aren't we all grateful that God called him? Because most of us are Gentiles. And we have heard the word of God. And we're going to hear about how the church, these people in Colossae heard the word of God due to the tough, tough work of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he was he never went to Colossae. He never made it there. It was about 100 miles from Ephesus where he served and labored, very difficult labor. Over two years he was there teaching day in and day out, teaching the Word of God. So much so that the book of Acts tells us that all of Asia, the continent of Asia at that time, heard, every person in the continent of Asia heard the gospel. As we look at this book, I want you to keep this word in mind, okay? Every time you see it, take note of it. It's, it's very, very important. Paul was writing because there were, as, as we're going to discover, Epaphras had come to Paul and shared the good news of, of what God had been doing in Colossae and among the Colossians. And, uh, but there was also a heresy, an error, that uh, contained many diverse elements, but at its core was a denial of the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. And so Paul is emphasizing in this book the completeness, the fullness found in Christ. And this morning, I want us to be able to see 
and to recognize the fullness, the completeness, the sufficiency of the gospel. Look how he addresses the Colossians. He calls them, and the, these underlined things here, they're, they're the blanks in your notes. So just if, if you're wanting to fill those in. And, and it, it, all of them are taken directly from the scripture. So the, if you miss a slide or something, that you can look in your Bible and fill in the blanks. But he refers to them as saints, faithful brothers in Christ. Isn't that interesting? A saint, a holy one. They're holy ones. All who put their faith in Christ, all who receive the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ and His taking God's wrath on your behalf for your sin. Trusting in Him, obeying Him, loving Him and following Him. You're a holy one. These people at Colossae, Paul calls them holy ones. And he calls them brothers. Brothers. Isn't that awesome? It's so great to be part of a congregation where we are brothers. Where we are brothers and sisters. Why? Not because we have too much in common most of the time. Uh, I'm a plumber. Who wants to hang out with a plumber? <laughs> Unless you have a broken pipe, right? <laughs> or your hot water tank fails. Or but, um, yeah, we're not necessarily known to be the most sociable people. I, I work a lot of time all alone. Um, but people consider me their brother here. That's awesome. Paul calls these people in Colossae brothers in Christ. In Christ. That's the association. That's where our brotherhood is found. In our Savior. This word Christ, it's not a, it's not a name, it's a title. It, it, it means Messiah. The Savior. The One who saves us. Makes us holy and makes us brothers. Paul gives this thanksgiving in prayer. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul recognizes that God is the one who is owed the thanks. He doesn't praise the Colossians for accomplishing anything. In fact, they accomplished nothing. That's the story of the Gospel. Christ Jesus accomplished what we cannot we cannot accomplish that relationship to, with God because of our sin. But Christ came. He lived amongst us. He lived a holy life, a sinless life. He suffered. He took God's wrath upon Himself on the cross for you and for me. And He rose again. Paul recognizes that God is the one who is owed thanks because salvation in all its parts is a gift from Him. So Paul is thankful to God for their faith. He gives thanks to God. He gives thanks specifically. 
it's verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Faith in Christ. The word faith is in the Greek is very associated to the word obey. Did you know that? Faith. We learned the ki- song as kids, trust and obey. And it's so. You can't have one without the other. Faith is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It is a trust. It is an entrusting too. And that is what entrusting into ourselves to Christ. His salvation. His finished work. And then our love and our desire to be obedient to Him. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not putting our brains in a bucket. It's not blind. No, it's revealed faith. As we even talked about this morning, God revealed the Gospel from the very first pages of the Scripture, from the earliest point in, the, in history. It's His revealed Gospel. The faith that God grants is permanent in all who receive it. Faith will endure. You will not lose your faith because it's a gift from God. God doesn't take back His gift. It's imparted from God so that we can have a relationship with Him. So that we can know Him and love Him. So that we will know His will. Paul is giving thanks to God in prayer not only for their faith, but because of the love that you have shown that you have for all the saints. The love for the saints that has been reported to him. There's an evidence of that faith. And that that evidence is that there is relationship with one another, as I just talked about with you folks and me. We have a relationship. Not because I'm anybody. Not because of what I do. But because I'm loved by God. And you are loved by God. And you have come to relationship with Him. And we have relationship. We have love one for another. He who has been loved much, if you realize how much you have been loved, you will love that much. you recognize how much you've been loved? How much Jesus loved you? How much He gave up for you? So that you could have a relationship with Him? Easter is just still fresh in my mind. Even though it's it's a month ago. But how much Christ gave how much He took upon Himself. And He didn't deserve it. He was sinless. He was God. He, he gave up His place to become a servant, to suffer, to die for me, for my sins. 
We owe this love one to another. And it's the fruit. It's the evidence that we have faith in Christ. Then he says, it's because of your hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now this hope Paul's talking about here isn't the kind of hope that you uh, have when you buy a lottery ticket. You know, that one in 300 million chance of winning. No, that's not the hope. It's an anticipation, an assurance of the God who promises you will realize in the future. It's the message of the Gospel that God talks about in restoring creation. When He comes again, He will restore things as He had created them. And that's part of the restoration. So Paul describes that hope that's laid up for us in heaven. And it it, mean, it, it actually literally means in the Greek, it's reserved for you. has your name on it. That inheritance, which is imperishable, will not fade away. No one can steal it. God established that hope in us by making us His children. John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because all we shall see, all because we shall see Him just as He is. One result of our hope is a willingness to sacrifice the present on the altar of the future. The world all around us, our culture preaches to us day in, day out that we, we have needs and we need it now. And the world can fulfill that need, which is a lie. There is a need, but that need it cannot be satisfied by the world, only through Christ. And we as Christians, we have a different perspective. We are willing to forsake the present glory, the comfort, the satisfaction of this present world for the future glory that is ours in Christ. So Paul was thanking God for the hope that was evident in the Colossians. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The word of truth, the gospel. Jesus taught that the characteristics of the good, sto- good soil were those who would hear the Word of God, those who would accept the Word of God, and those who would bear fruit. 
The living gospel is the power that transforms lives. As it does, the witness of those transformed lives is to produce fruit. Now, in addressing the error that the church of Colossae was facing, there was an urging, and I believe that possibly this was not coming from necessarily outside the church, but perhaps even inside, an urging to a fullness not previously enjoyed, attempts to add to the simple elementary faith. Perhaps this could have been by, um, by the effect of the leadership influenced by the spirit of the age, which leads to a dilution of the truth, a diminishing of the truth, and the destruction of the truth. So we can see this danger all around, even as our subcultures within our church. And, and we must guard against it. We must be true to the gospel. We must be obedient. I was, uh, had the privilege of interviewing um, with the other elders um, individuals for membership, and sometimes I'll ask a question such as, you know, how can we help you as leadership in this church? How can we lead you? And one, point, one time, a person that we were interviewing, um, I asked a little differently, I asked, uh, what do you expect from us as leaders, as elders? And this person so wisely said, I expect you to obey Christ. I expect you to obey. We have a great responsibility as leaders in the church, you as members of the church, to guard against extras, that can subtly be identified as the gospel when in fact they are extras added to the gospel. We must be resolute to what the gospel, to the simple gospel. The gospel is revealed in God's word. And, and some of these things, some of these things are so subtle because they're good things. They're good things for us as Christians to be involved in or to be associated with. But when we start looking and saying, identifying our faith with that subcategory, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And, th and when others identify us with those subcategories, we need to be people of the gospel proclaiming the sufficiency of the gospel. Jesus paid it all, and it was enough. And it's all we need. Paul goes on to intercede for this church in prayer. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased, verse 9, to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see these words? All. Full. <laughs> it's just 
over and over and over again. He's emphasizing the completeness of the Gospel and His prayer for them to understand they are complete in Christ. He wants them them to see that they are filled with the knowledge of His will. They have God's will. You have God's will. You know where it is? You know where to find it? You know where to what it is? How to distinguish it? It's here. God tells us what His will is. You say, well, how does that help me know whether or not to buy that boat? Or to buy that car? Or to know if I should change jobs? Or, you know, we get so tangled up in some of those details, don't we? We need to make sure, first of all, primarily, am I obeying God? Am I obeying God? In carrying out that transaction or making that move, am I obeying God? Is there something that is ca- would cause me to disobey God? So we have the knowledge of His will. It's here in His Word. As I pointed out earlier, the Colossians did not have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. But they had the will of God. They could know fully the will of God. All spiritual wisdom and understanding to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. They had what they needed. In Christ. Then Paul continues to pray for them that they bear fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Isn't this again? Do you see this? Every good work. The completeness here, the fullness that Paul is emphasizing, increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's a wonderful. Um, point there, increasing in the knowledge of God. Um, over in First Peter, or Second Peter chapter one, these verses just are so incredible. Verse three, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's divine power has granted to you all things you need for life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So through the knowledge of Christ, through the knowledge of Jesus, who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He, Jesus, has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a powerful text, isn't it? What an amazing promise that is ours in Christ. But there's some instruction, some duty we have, isn't there? To grow in. To increase our knowledge. To supplement our faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. And then Paul goes on to pray for this church that they be strengthened. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks. Strengthened with all power and according to His glorious might. This word glorious, this is like this revelation of God, this manifestation of God attribute. His power. He is all-powerful. We know that we believe that about God through the revelation of His Word. He is all-powerful. He has strengthened you with all power for all endurance. Endurance is something that you have to go through. It, it, it may be something that you haven't chosen. And patience. Waiting upon the Lord in joy. Joyous endurance of trials. Knowing God's promises and purposes revealed in Scripture makes the strength to endure trials and sufferings. We come to this last section of our text this morning, the Gospel truth. It's right kind of in the middle of the verse, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Father has delivered us. First of all, He has qualified us. And then He has delivered us. I'm skipping this rather quickly here. The Father has 
qualified us. He's delivered us. Through faith, you share God's promises and have Jesus' righteousness. We live amongst those in the kingdom of darkness, but we are no longer its subjects. We've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We are subjects, even gloriously slaves of Jesus' kingdom, ransomed by His blood, receiving the forgiveness of sins. All this as a gift from God, His grace. I just wanted to share, just in closing, um, Tuesday I was just so struck. I was driving from uh, Whidbey Island back up to Bellingham, and I was reflecting on something that had happened to me as a child, something that I um, wished hadn't have happened. It, I had sinned, and I had been corrected by my parents, but in a way that I uh, resented. But as I was reflecting on God's grace, you know, God's grace is a gift, right? And we have to understand, grace does not ignore wrong. Grace does not ignore wrong. And I was meditating on that as I was driving, and I just started weeping. I just started crying all the way up, driving up to Bellingham. Because I came to the realization that what I thought, what I resented was God's gift. It was His grace in my life. I had, I acknowledged I had sinned and I had been punished by my parents. I had been corrected by my parents. In their w wisdom, in, in, in the best of their ability. I resented it in the way it was done, but it was God's grace to me. I, I have no business being resentful over them. I should be thankful because it was God's gift to me to see the seriousness of my sin. And that only He could ever change me Because even as a little, little kid, that sin would haunt me. It would chase me through my life. But my, by God's grace, my, God brought my parents to correct me. It was His gift. It wasn't just His overlooking of my sin. was his showing me the seriousness of my sin. And that my sin was paid for by Jesus Christ. He took it upon himself. What a sufficient gospel. As we come to our response, what should be our response to the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ. All through His Word, the sufficiency of His Word. And I believe it is we should worship. We should worship. We should 
hear His Word. We should listen, have ears to hear. Not to just to what makes us feel good, but what has God said? What has God said? Secondly, we should give thanks. And if we're giving thanks, we've received His Word. We've accepted it. We've said, I need to hear that, Lord. Thank You for revealing that to me. Thank You for revealing who I am, my shortcoming, and Your sufficiency, Your fullness. Thank You, Lord. And then we should rest. We should recognize we are free. Because it's not dependent on me. It's not dependent on me digging myself out of this hole. Christ has bridged the gap. He has made the way. And then, in a heart of gratitude, we should bear fruit. A heart filled with love for Him. We will love Him more. We will obey Him. We will love one another. We will recognize that in our service, we aren't serving just one another. We aren't serving the church. We aren't serving Good Shepherd Community Church. We aren't serving Pastor Jeremy Pickens or the elders of Good Shepherd Community Church. We are serving Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would use Your Word. That You would convict us and help us to be steadfast in the belief, in the reality of the sufficiency of the Gospel. Lord, minister to us. Our hearts, we, even in our faith, we struggle with unbelief. Lord, cast out those shadows. Cause us to glory in the finished work of your Son. In your name.